Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. To join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on Clinical Athlete. Athlete.com. This podcast can also be found on our website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. We are in part two of our interview with Mike Tushier of Reactive Training Systems, and we will let you join in the middle of the great conversation with myself, Quinn Hennick, Jared Maynard, John Flagg, and Mike T. Enjoy. Emerging strategies seems to me like it's a way to simplify the process and it's a way to chop away some of the assumptions that we inherently make in regards to trying to box in a complex system. Yeah. Is that, is that kind of your thinking? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's reducing the noise so you can see the signal a little more clearly. That's how I would describe it, you know? And so like I remember first kind of thinking about this and thinking like, man, this is so weird. It's so different just doing the same thing every week. And I remember pitching it to one of my athletes. I was like, Hey, I want to try this new thing with you. I've never done this before. You know, what do you think? You know? And she's like, wait a second. So we're going to do a thing. And then as long as it works, we're going to keep doing it. And when it stops working, we're going to do something else. I was like, uh, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Kind of simple when you put it that way. She's like, yeah, cool, whatever, you know? And, and I thought it's like, that's what you would do in training. If you had never been taught about periodization models, Oh, you got to always change it up. No two workouts are ever the same. Like, well, you would do a thing and you just keep doing it as long as you better at it. And then when it stopped working, you'd think, huh, maybe I ought to try something else. You know, it seems like a pretty simple way of going about it. And I think it turns out that, you get a lot of information from simplifying the process like that. I think the assumption of periodization is that there's a set time when the athlete is going to need variation. So you put these, yeah. you put these timetables on. It's not just let's do this thing until it stops working. It's let's do this thing for this particular time. You will feel this way and then we'll switch it up. You will respond this way. And when we taper, you will be super compensated exactly the way that we envision that to happen. And it doesn't seem to work like that. (laughs) But the the example that you gave with your athlete not hitting anything heavier than a six rep max before a a competition, I think that's a very that's that is scary for a lot of coaches to make a decision like Mm that, dude. So last year, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm cutting you off here, but I've got another example that highlights that. So last year we're getting ready for worlds and I was, uh, fortunately working with Brett Gibbs at the time and we'd gone through this whole process and, and we had found that his deadlift really responded best when we were training at the lowest intensities, like 70, 75%. Uh, and the second best was middle intensities, 80, 85%. And it didn't really respond that great to the high intensity work. So I remember talking to him about this and setting it up 
so that we kind of reverse periodized his deadlift training going into the meet. So his second to last block was middle intensity. His last block was lowest intensity. And he went into the meet and and crushed it, had a great meet. Uh, uh, 10 times body weight total. Uh, had a great deadlift at that meet too. Um, but that was, I was really nervous going into that because it's like this is, there's a lot riding on this. And if it doesn't work, boy, you look like a dummy. Whereas if you just kind of stick to the status quo and it doesn't work, you can throw up your hands like, well, I did everything I was supposed to. Like, well, (laughs) do you think some would have just called that a two month taper? Maybe he, uh, (laughs) I guess you could, I guess you could. I find that people mean a lot of different things when they say taper. Yeah. (laughs) When you say, well, you find athletes that respond well to different things. How are you defining respond well? Is it keep, and do you have little test markers? Like if you're keeping people at lower or moderate intensities because you found what that works, that works best for them. Are you just assuming and hoping that has then transferred to what, you know, the end goal of one rep max? Or are there little tests that you throw in in there to, you know, gauge a little bit? I like to base it off of estimated 1RM, uh, which tends to be pretty reliable for most of the stuff that we're doing. Um, so I'm tracking progress based on estimated 1RM. Um, it doesn't have to be just that. Um, you could do AMRAPs. Um, you know, just you do need something uh, that is going to give you some performance feedback. Um, and I think the more reliable, the more relevant it is to your competition performance, the better, the better it's going to work. So like, I know the throwers, they're going to, they're going to have a few competition throws at the beginning of the session. And that's, that's their benchmark, you know, and they may throw heavy hammers or light hammers, but that's, they would treat that like a special exercise, you know, how we would treat safety bar squats or something like that. Do you think it would be beneficial to have somebody work up to a relatively heavy single and then like just as a temperature gauge, not a, you know, not a 10, just an eight and like an eight and see how it feels, look at bar speed, something like that, and then work into whatever they were going to do, but it's not enough intensity to wreck them. Yeah. But no, I, I, I really like that as a, as a benchmarking tactic, um, single at an eight RPE or something like that. That's a, and then back off work after that. That's a really good way to to benchmark progress and, and have it be relevant. Um, I do find that we went through a period where we were doing that like all the time, you know, and that got overused too. You know, you anything that's in the program all the time is going to get overused and, and you have to take some breaks from it. You just know? max out every day now. They forget. It's not a yeah. <laughs> back to Bulgaria. Yeah. Right. It all comes back. <laughs> do you, do you let people take advantage of opportunistic days? Because I know that you said that the RPE is the same relatively from microcycle to microcycle. Now that could mean the load on the bar changes. I think people confuse that you can, you can do a heavier weight at the same RPE. And that's, a, that's an indication of, of success. You're getting stronger because right. it's not, it's taxing yeah. you the same, but it's heavier on the bar. The external load's heavier. But what if you had, let's say last week we were doing triples at eight, and it was a true eight. Maybe it wasn't even an, an 8.5. You know, you kind of overshot a little bit. This week, that same load feels like a six. Man, it's moving. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And and you're and this is an athlete that's right in front of your face. You're watching them. Do you take advantage of those days in the sense of you know what? This is a day that we might not have next week. Let's just go for it. Let's let's go up until you know until there's a nine nine and a half on the bar and and, and see where we're at. Or is it more? Let's just stay the course because auto regulation helps to steer the ship. Yeah. yeah. Um. I mean, context dependent. So some things that might that might govern that, um, you know, the importance of the block. Like I know that if we just, Hey, whatever, let's send it, you know, that's probably going to kill the block. Um, it, I, I find that it's rare that we'll just send it in this workout and then we'll come back, you know, even the next week and just keep progressing like we would have expected to. Nah, it's probably going to be the end, you know. So if we have time to kill this block and and still reorient and be on pace for whatever competition we're training for, then, yeah, that'd be fine. Um, and maybe even beneficial, you know, because how often do you get to go for it, you know. And, and that's another thing that that is kind of part of uh, Bonderchuk's original uh, philosophy in this is that, you know, if you think about kind of a traditional planning approach, how many how many sessions does the athlete do when they're training in a, in a real peak condition, uh, when they're really at their best? It's like everything is leading up to that, but then you only get a very short amount of time there. So his one of his original ideas is that if you have this single stimulus, and for him it was one training session that repeats, you're going to get a lot more peaks per year and that you'll get a lot more exposure to, to training in that peak condition. Um, so if you think about it that way, if you assume that training in a peak condition is, is valuable, then, Hey, if you're having one of those days and you've got the, and you can afford it, then yeah, I mean, that'd be cool, but it will have some costs, you know, and can you pay those costs? It sounds like, Oh, go go ahead, John. So, when when people hear that, the one thing they they kind of red flag in their head or, or they get an exclamation point um, is is fatigue. What are your current thoughts on on fatigue and its impact, especially when we start talking about that kind of training? Man, so fatigue is is kind of a mystery to me right now. Um, let, let me. I think that especially in like the evidence-based powerlifting bodybuilding communities we've kind of relegated fatigue to this unwanted byproduct status you know it's not important uh it's not you know fatigue is related to muscle damage muscle damage isn't useful for hypertrophy it's not useful for strength it's disruptive to technique so like yeah it's it, it's this unwanted byproduct of training and i don't know what it is it feels like something is missing it feels like yeah i see how we got there and i see like how our thinking kind of arrives at that conclusion but it just feels like we're missing the forest for the trees that there's something essential that fatigue can be telling us that's outside of its physiological, like it doesn't have to be directly stimulating of, of muscle hypertrophy, for example, uh, for it to be useful in some capacity. 
Well, you mentioned the example of, of going, taking advantage of the opportunity, pushing the red line a little bit, and just signing off on the fact that there's probably going to be a little cost to that. Yeah. Is that, are you defining that cost as fatigue? I, I don't know. I mean, it's tough to differentiate, right? So if, if I say, okay, we're in session four and you're having a great session, so we just go for it. Session five, the performance is worse. Is the performance worse because of fatigue or something else? Because there's a lot of other, I mean, it, it's really difficult, I think, to, to nail down a definition of fatigue. And I don't think the definition of fatigue is, is that closely related to performance. Because I've had athletes who are absolutely fatigued. They feel wrecked uh, near the point of injury, but are still performing well. You know, it's not, they're just not that tightly related. There's other things that are affecting performance other than fatigue. Fatigue definitely does affect performance at some point, but that's a lot more of a fuzzy relationship than I think than I think we, we wish it was, you know? Well, we can look back uh, a little earlier in the conversation and start talking about fatigue's relation to their expectations. If if they've had a crappy training cycle where they're tired um, before and they didn't have a great day, how much do they come in and go, well, I'm tired again. This is going to suck. Right. And some people just, they don't think that way. They're, they're tired. They're like, I'm still going to get after this. I got to do what I got to do. And they yeah. just PR everything in that state. Um, so I'm with you. I don't, I don't know if it's as great of an indicator for performance as we claim it to be. Yeah. And, and I mean, I've seen it go the other way as well. Like, uh, you know, you've got um, whatever training intervention and, you know, you keep going. Uh, until there's a performance degrade, uh, you know, whether there's volume manipulations or not, you keep going until there's a performance degrade. And we say, oh, that's fatigue. You know, that indicates something about your level of fatigue tolerance or something like that. Like, well, how do we know that? Like, if, if we're saying fatigue equals performance, like that doesn't seem right, you know? It's got to be a proxy for something else, but... It- yeah, but it's hard with the psychological component as well, because for some athletes, if they they feel a certain way, that lends itself to like what Jared said earlier. It's almost like a self fulfilling prophecy. I feel tired. I'm probably going to have a shitty workout. Whereas other athletes don't necessarily, and maybe it's because they're experienced and they have they know patterns and they know not to necessarily listen to something right off the bat. Or maybe it's just athletes who don't care and they feel a certain way, but they're still going to go into the gym and do their normal thing and. If the day shapes up to be fantastic, that's awesome, and that happens a lot. It's it's hard to know when we're talking about fatigue how the psyche responds to the feeling and how yeah. how willing you are to to touch it a little bit, to keep touching it, because sometimes warm, just starting your warm-ups is not good enough either. That still feels like yeah. shit. But, but there's like that thing that just clicks, and all of a sudden you're at your top sets, and it, it turns out to be a really good day. That Those are the things that you just can't explain. Now, the rebuttal to that would be, but you're constantly pushing the red line. Your body was telling you something. 
for a reason. Maybe you can always supersede that if you wanted to, but what's the accumulative cost of doing that on a consistent basis, consistent basis, where you're not thinking long-term, you're just thinking session to session. That's the rebuttal. I don't steer that way generally. I, My thought is get the most out of every single session as you possibly can. And if things accumulate to the point where you can't manipulate yourself out of it, then it's pivot block time. Uh, or, <laughs> but to me, that's just hard training. I, I agree. I think you have to win the training sessions, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you can't expect the block to just magically be great if you're not winning training sessions along the way. And sometimes that means, hey, suck it up. You've got to figure this out. And there's value in that. Should you do it every time? Eh, probably not. You know, there's some limit there, but the limit isn't, oh, never, never do that. You know, uh, you shouldn't go too far the other way either. I think just just the fact that, that you show yourself. Like, so I had I had a a happy example of this uh, on Thursday this week. So I'm doing these uh, uh, front squats. Uh, oh, brutal. <laughs> so I'm doing these front squats, and and I've got in my head that I'm it's like a high box front squat. It's, it's, I, I do weird weird stuff in my training these days, but uh, I'm doing sets of ten, and I've got it in my head that I want to try this four hundred five front squat for set of ten uh, off this box, and I've been working up to that. Last week I was working up to it, and it is one of those sessions that you were talking about, Quinn. Like it it looked like it was there. But I was like, uh, the the prudent decision is to go 395, not 405. And so that's what I did. And I crushed it. 405 definitely would have been there, you know. Uh, and I thought, well, that's fine. I I played the smart game and I, you know, held the line. I waited, you know, I'll wait for a week. And so this week I come in and everything felt like garbage. Like I, I had my two uh, work sets before the top set. Like they were terrible. And in fact, the the second one, uh, which was 385, was like a max effort. You know, I I had zero justification for adding 20 pounds and expecting this to go well. But I was like, well, you know what? I I don't want to wait another week. We're going to try it. The worst that happens is I miss it, you know. So I tried it and I got it and I got it at the target RPE and everything. So um, some weeks you just got to say you know, screw it. We're going for it, you know, and I'll see if I can show myself something. So I'm to say that my coach has front squats in my program right now. So every week that the knurling of my power bar is digging into my clavicles, I just think that Mike T is doing four or five for sets of 10 now. <laughs> so I got to step it up. <laughs> that example yeah. speaks, I think, highly to the, the psychological side of things. Whereas you had it in your head, whether you're thinking about it overtly or not throughout the week, Last week, you knew you were going to go for 405. You've known yeah. that up until this week. Yeah. And it's like those warm-up, yeah, those warm-up <laughs> weights, you didn't care about those. Right. You know, it was like you probably could have put 405 on the bar just, let's just get it <laughs> over with. It, it, you know? Yeah. Um, which is kind of what a, another question is, do you think that it's possible for people to switch to a pivot block too soon? Like, yeah. are, are those down weeks really an indication to switch it up? Or are those down weeks just your body's natural way of 
quote unquote deloading and there's probably going to be an upswing behind it where if we're talking about fatigue maybe it's maybe fatigue in these these dips in performance they don't seem like they're proportional because we're looking at them in one-off snapshots but if you took a step back mm -hmm. and, and looked at more of a broader pattern you probably would see a little bit more correlation how do you know when to switch it up i know that's a well, you don't but the heuristic starts simple and then we'll go back into the <laughs> into the esoterics of training i guess but uh, um my uh my heuristic is uh especially for the first training block two down sessions so, you know, if you're that type one responder, everything's getting better. And then all of a sudden there's one down session. Maybe that's just a blip, you know, and sometimes it is. Uh, but then if there's a second down session, then I think it's not worth the risk. You know, so I think of it like a risk reward type thing. It, it might be that we could keep it going and it'll turn around and it probably would at some point. But I think there's risk in that. And um, at least uh, I always like to reference the, the Bonderchuk, uh, dogma really, um, at least according to him is that once you hit this peak condition, if you keep going, you kind of bounce around between dips in performance and then back up to a peak condition, but you don't really go much past that. Now, I mean, the, the whole notion of uh, like Bulgarian style 1RM, like repeated 1RM training is is that, right? That eventually the trend line is is going up, although there's got to be a limit to that too. And then the question is like, what's going to make it go up faster? Well, you could also say that there was just selection bias. Whoever happened, sure. that maybe that system just happened to be the best system for a particular set of athletes. And those are the athletes that survived. Yeah. When you say yeah. two, two sessions, do you mean two subsequent training workouts yeah, two, or do you two mean microcycles? Oh, two. So maybe potentially two weeks. Right. Right. Or depending on what you're doing, but too bad. So what, I, so, so what I've found is that there's kind of a feeling uh, that, that athletes associate with that peak condition. Um, for me, it's boredom. Um, like training is interesting. It's fun. I look forward to my training, but I know that once I hit that peak condition, I'm like suddenly very bored with it. Like, I just don't want to do this anymore. Um, so some sort of novelty introduction helps with that. Uh, it, it's that for a lot of people, but, uh, for others, it's, uh, like, uh, Isabella describes it as like in the beginning, she feels you like in week one, you feel good, excited to train, but then you start the training process and you're not in a peak condition anymore. Uh, so the performance is bad. So there's kind of this uh, dissonance that happens. It's like, man, I want to be here, but then I'm screwing everything up. It sucks. Um, but then in week two, that improves. And, you know, you kind of go through this thing of gradually improving. And she says for her, when she's coming close to the end, she starts to feel very, very strong, uh, but also a bit fragile. Uh, like she doesn't want to get out of these certain movement patterns. And 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 then peak condition, um, if we were to keep going, it would be like a performance decline. And I've had other lifters who they get feeling really, really beat up. 
uh, to the, like, they're telling me, Hey, I'm, I'm afraid that if I keep going, like, I know my performance is good, but I'm afraid if I keep going, then I'm going to get hurt. And uh, that's not worth it, you know? So, okay, that this is where we're going to pull the plug for you, you know? And, and that's kind of how I've based it. It takes a lot of work on the coach's side. Yeah. You got to really be in tune. Yes. That's, I mean, I think that's like the benefit and the main detractor, right? That uh, I think this works great if you're a coach that's switched on, that is attentive, uh, that frankly has some has some knowledge to bring to the table. You know, if, it, it's creative problem solving. So if you have nothing behind you, you know, like you, you don't have any experience with this at all. Uh, like if I'm if you ask me to build your website. I don't know how to do that. Like I'm, I'm going to have zero problem solving capability. You have to have some requisite variety behind you, you know? And I think that this really highlights that because you're stripping away all the framework that fills in a lot of those gaps for you in a, in a more traditional planning model, you know, like a traditional yeah. planning model, we say, well, the intensity is going to gradually rise. It's, you know, the volume is going to gradually decline. And now you say, get rid of that. You tell me what to do. You know, mm-hmm. are we going to increase the intensity or decrease it? Or maybe it's the same and we're just going to change movements. You, you tell me, you know, if there's no planning paradigm to to fill that, fill in those blanks, then it puts a bit more pressure on on whoever it is writing the training. I think it makes. But it that's good. where that that relationship between coach and athlete becomes so super super important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I really like to lean on athlete input for that too. Right. You know, say, hey, you know, I'm really torn. You know, you've had equally good responses to this exercise and that exercise. We need to pick one. Do you have a gut feeling? You know, and if they do, then I see no reason not to go with that. It makes the conversation of fatigue even that more relevant to me because you're always attempting, first of all, you're always attempting to tinker, but it's like, if we can't define what fatigue is, it, it, I think, you know, it's at some point the body, like if I don't, if I don't eat for six months, I'm not going to even come (laughs) close to that. Like I'm going to die, but, but there are people, you know, these, these crazy stories, these crazy anecdotes mm-hmm. of people surviving months without food. And it's like, what was there? Was there a precipitating? Was there a motivation behind it? Or um, there's all these different factors. So it's like fatigue to a point you can always like physiologically on a biological level, you can impose enough stress to break somebody at some point. So fatigue becomes more of a performance fatigue one in one kind of factor there. But especially in powerlifting and, and weight, barbell sports in general, we're probably not getting to that point much often. But then uh, there's these other factors of motivation, uh, boredom, because you can be bored with the exercises, but you can also be motivated and, and kind of push through that boredom. If you know that I've got a meet coming up and I'm doing these exercises, like I'm not having fun training, but this is practice. I, I'm going to have fun at the meet. But you can be, you can be motivated, but just hate the training. It's like, I'm so sick of, I love powerlifting, but I'm so sick of these fucking exercises. Um, and that's just this conglomeration of factors that maybe is fatigue is just a proxy for all of these things. And 
you're trying to gauge one or the other. And if you tinker with one, maybe that pushes you another microcycle or so. And if you find that no matter how you spin it, the athlete's telling you that they feel broken, you're seeing performance also, and you're just the way that you're talking to them, wellness questionnaires, there's all these factors contribute to you saying, all right, time to pivot. Yeah. Well, there's kind of this uncoupling, at least to me, that, that happens between if if we can define fatigue just for a minute as, you know, the, the athlete's perception of their own recovery status, their own healing, something, something like that. Um, there's an uncoupling that happens between that and performance with this, with this type of model, because in the beginning of a development cycle, they feel great. Usually they're coming off of the pivot. They're motivated. They're feeling rested, but performance is at its worst. Uh, at the end of the block, a lot of times they're feeling beat up. They're feeling not the greatest. They've gone through an entire development block, but that's where their performance is at its best, you know? And if you use that for planning your time into competition at that point, say, okay, you peak in six exposures. So you put the competition on the sixth exposure, reliably performance will be at a peak on that competition day, you know, and you work backwards from there. Okay, that's great. Performance will be at a peak. The athlete will also feel crappy. Mm. You know? Now, if there if you can get everybody okay with that, that I think it works just fine because the thing you care about is the performance. Like you just smoke some PRs on the platform. I don't really care that, you know, uh didn't feel good when I did it, right? <laughs> I would rather have the PRs. You can feel good later. <laughs> <laughs> but it also has the potential to make athletes really nervous because that's really unusual. Usually we want to feel good and rested and it breaks down what we think of as the, the taper into competition. That's another mind fuck and not just for the coach, for the athlete too. <laughs> the traditional yeah. taper is so interesting because you expect it's like, okay, just let me get to the taper. Our athletes, we hear it. We're starting to shift a lot of our models as well, but some of them are still on a kind of traditional uh, blocks and they're always, I just want to get to the taper, just get to the taper, just get to the taper. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to feel better. And now we've tapered your training. So you in effect have become slightly deconditioned. Like we're hoping that your fitness level maintains and your fatigue decays. That's what the textbook tells us, but that may not be the case. And you could still feel like shit. Right. It's it's the peaking and the taper that I think are your emerging strategies seem so seems so different, but those are also the time periods that seem the most confusing because of of how we're trying to box in a complex system like the human body into this this model that's supposed to be predictive. So uh, what a year or so ago, I think about a year ago, uh, I sat down with some other guys um, and I was asking for criticism of this idea um, because for a while it makes me really nervous if I don't see the weaknesses of an idea because all ideas have them and if you don't see them, they're still there, right? Um, So I was wanting to get some feedback and for 
for people to honestly make some criticisms of this. And and one of the criticisms that Bryce Lewis suggested was this idea of tapering or, or kind of the non-taper. So uh, just to be a little bit more clear, the way that I would do it kind of at a baseline is just kind of what I said before. So let's say you peak on the sixth exposure. So you put that on the competition day and you work backwards. So training is normal going into the competition. The week before the meet, you do normal training sessions. The only difference is you might rest for two or three days prior to competing just so that you're not fresh off a training session. Like that's Mini taper. a bit too much. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like com- compressing that taper into an extremely short period of time. Right. Um, his criticism was, Maybe you could apply the same type of thinking. Like there's this, there's this all this thinking around optimizing the development cycle so it produces the a peak result for the athlete. You could apply that same type of thinking to a taper strategy as well. You know, what taper strategy can I do that's going to produce a peak result for the athlete? Maybe it's higher volume or lower volume or whatever. Um, and I think that's that's valid. I think it's probably a good place to start to do this kind of non-taper approach because it's going to reliably lead to a peak condition. It may not be the very highest peak that's achievable, but it's a peak. Uh, and that's, that's something, you know, and then from there you can maybe tweak it, modify it, maybe, uh, you know, reduce some of the volume or, or maybe change something, you know, it's time to get creative at that point. Well, and the hardest part with that is, when you say the highest peak possible, how realistic is, is that really like, it's such a, such a moving target. Yeah. Well, the difference between like, what, what if you could look at your crystal ball and say, you know, approach a is going to lead to a slightly lower peak, but a higher probability of hitting it, you know, approach B is potentially a bigger peak, but a lower probability of hitting it. Like that's probably what you're dealing with. You know, I was going to say how many traditional tapers where you, you feel like Superman, how many times has that happened? And versus that same person going through traditional tapers and kind of shit in the bed where they actually peaked maybe a month early and on, yeah. on game day, they didn't hit those numbers. It's almost, it's almost a chance game. I, that's been my experience. You have people that show up to competition and go, man, I was feeling really great the week before this. I don't know what happened. You know, um, they're a week out and then all of a sudden the bottom falls out of of their training and you're just kind of pulling your hair out. Like, I don't know what happened. Well, I think if you really, what this is, is just kind of monitoring how long does it take for the bottom to fall out of it? Well, let's make sure that that doesn't happen right before the competition. You know, let's shift some things around using that knowledge that you've gained. You know, what's interesting is if even if you let's say you are a week off, because that's sometimes those times to peak can fluctuate based on and maybe the fact that the anticipation of the meet, the anxiety of that makes them peak a, a week early. Yeah. But if they're still going to be fit, they're still going to be at somewhere on a on a that on a bell curve, let's say peak is peak, but you're still going to be a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, but that's still pretty high up as far as a fitness standpoint versus tapering, it's almost like it's either all or nothing. Like you either 
Like people can really shit the bed sometimes. Yeah, like if you've been, re- like you say, like you're reducing your training, you know, and if you've been doing that for a month leading up to this and now the bottom falls out of it, where do you go from there? You know, mm-hmm. whereas if you've been maintaining things pretty normally, you know, if I have an athlete that, you know, they've peaked a week before I expected them to, you know, and now they're a few days, you know, a few days a week out from competition and it's looking like things are on the downward slide. Well, I have some options, you know, I can reduce the training load. I can say, Hey, you know, those last two sessions we were planning to hit, like let's only do warm ups for those or something like we can do something and try to maintain that. Um, whereas the, the other way it's like, well, you've already shot your shot, you know, you just kind of got to ride it in. Yeah. I, the, you got me thinking about this whole fatigue thing. On one side of the coin, it's like fatigue could be a measure of of readiness. Like if you're at some point, there's divergence. But if you if you accumulate fatigue, could that be synonymous with accumulating fitness to a point where at least you know, like you feel tired because you've been training hard, but your performance is at its highest. Man, and there, there's. I'm- I'm glad you've got this crazy now too, because I've had it for like a year. <laughs> I've been driving everybody on my staff nuts with it. Thanks. Like Appreciate it. Call me crazy. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully you can help me figure this out. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just really complicated, you know, and just something about the simple explanation is like, it seems really incomplete, you know, I don't know. I can't get past that, like that feeling of it being incomplete. And I've been thinking a lot about, okay, what does it tell us? You know, does it tell us anything? Is it some, some sort of useful indicator? I mean, if you do more training, you feel more fatigue. I think that by itself is a useful indicator of, of what it is that you're doing. Um, something I've been looking at and just in this block, really, uh, I've been looking at my, uh, my wellness questionnaire numbers essentially, and my training stress balance. And what I'm finding is as I progress through the block, I'm feeling more fatigue and the training stress balance is going down as my, so training stress balance, uh, is this week's training load, uh, as a percentage of my rolling four week or six week average, you know? So as you progress through the block, that average training load is coming up to meet whatever it is that you're doing now, you know? Uh, so your percentage of that baseline is, is going down. So you get closer and closer to, uh, the baseline. Uh, but fatigue is accumulating and, that seems like an interesting thing that's going on, you know, and I wonder how that relates to something like peak condition, you know, like you, as you stop adapting to this training load, like it's, it's more and more of a kind of a monotonous training load. This is the same training load that you've been doing for the last six or eight weeks, you know, um, and you've accumulated fatigue through this process, you know, and you can, demonstrate that you're feeling worse than you did at the beginning. And also it's a training load that you're accustomed to now, you know, 
It's an interplay. There's with, no conclusion to any of this. Well, know, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's chronic load. Maybe chronic load is yeah. what's important to accumulate fitness to a point. And then the acute load becomes acutely important to redirect and, and attempt to, to make monotony another stimulating thing, but with, but with different, different stressors. <laughs> do you, do you measure, huh? speaking of monotony, <laughs> you know, monotony is an actual metric. Right. Do you, with, and, and I just off the top of my head, it's generally uh, training load defined as SRPE load. So they'll, now SRPE score times the time. This is from studies with like rugby and, and Australian rules football and soccer, things like mm -hmm. that. SR, SRPE times time to give you some type of arbitrary unit as a proxy of training load each day. Mm -hmm. And then the weekly averages, you do, you take the weekly average times the standard deviation of your, of your uh, training load. And that's a monotony. That's actually, that's, you know, the, the term monotony. Oh, yeah, yeah. Have you ever messed around with anything like that to actually measure variation in training? Because the idea is that higher monotony will lead then to staleness. And maybe that's mm. something that can be looked at. That would be interesting. I haven't looked at that metric in particular. Um, I do tend to think that the pivots are really important. And it, so it's it's something that would have kind of freaked me out uh, in my younger years. Uh, because so think of a pivot block is roughly a third the length of the development block. Um, so you do a, a six week development block, you're going to do a two week long pivot. So the whole thing takes eight weeks. You're spending 25% of your training time in this pivot block, you know, and that seems like a lot, you know, extrapolate that over a year, you're spending 25% of the year, you know, uh, not training to get stronger like uh, man younger me is gonna have a hard time swallowing that you know but i i think that i think it's important from a, a sensitivity to training yeah. standpoint like i think it it makes the actual training more effective and i'll also just a subjective really observation I've had to refer out for injuries and stuff like that just so much less since we've implemented that. You know, I just like, yeah, people have aches and pains and like little things here and there, but I just don't have anybody that's like, hey, I'm I'm hurt. I can't train right now. I need to see somebody about fixing this. You know, I just don't have that as much. And, and that by itself is probably probably worth worth the price of admission, you know. Do you think some of that has to do with those pivot blocks increasing some motor skill acquisition and getting them more accustomed to the the new new variations before loading it up? I, it could be that. It could be just the fact that I'm trying to take some of the load off of kind of the same old things, you know. So you spend twenty five percent of your time not doing the competition exercises. I mean, although stuff like high bar squats is pretty damn close but you know maybe it's enough you know the fact that you're not it's not as much loading on the things that always get loaded you know um and i mean you're right though like that is one of the 
specific goals is to do movements that you don't normally get time to do or, or have the space and training to do. So things, uh, different planes of movement. One thing for powerlifters, a lot of times row variations and ab work, stuff like that gets put on the shelf. I mean, does any of that matter? I don't know, but it probably doesn't make you worse, you know? I think that um, I think the the sensitization resensitizing the novelty is powerful if anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I think from from a progression standpoint, yeah. Yeah. Are the pivot blocks different completely different exercises from the preceding microcycles and if so, do you ever find that if the exercises are so different, you kind of get the inverse of a repeated bout effect because things are different and they actually get sore from the pivot block. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I don't, I'm not too worried about it. You just kind of let it be a little sore. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. But ideally you would change everything when you hit the pivot. Like you would like even the structure of training, like you always squat on Monday. Well, now you squat on Thursday, you know, mm. um, mm. change the, the movements you normally do full body workouts. Now we're going to do upper lower split, you know, or change as many things as you can think of. You know, you want the, the pivot training to be really, really different. You know, that's interesting to me. Cause I think that a lot of coaches, their traditional deload weeks are the, it's the same exact setup. It's just maybe a reduction in intensity or maybe volume and yeah. intensity, but everything else is is the same. Yeah. And that's like, but where do you I, go? I just think of it like from the, from that sensitivity standpoint, you know, like if I, the, because what it, it's supposed to set you up for your next development block. Right. And if I know that I kind of want to be, you know, doing this type of thing in my next development block, well, I want to make sure that, you're as sensitive to that stimulus as possible. So we're going to do something that's completely different from that now. So that when we come back to it in two weeks or whatever, that you kind of have that attentional moment again, where you go, mm. Oh, so what are we doing today? All right. So how much weight do I need? And so you kind of have to pay attention to what it is that you're doing again, you know? So the, the pip, finding the, out all your different settings on the different racks and stuff like that. Like I, I what if that matters, you know? The pivot block is different than the preceding microcycles, and it's also different than yeah. the the future microcycles. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's its own it's, standalone yeah. thing. It's probably more important that it's different from the next mi- microcycle than than the previous. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> I first of all, this has been awesome, Mike. Thanks for coming on thanks so much for the conversation we could talk for days and i know it's like midnight where yeah. you are well yeah, so I'm thinking, there, but, yeah. Um, well i'm thinking if we uh you know we chew on these topics a little bit we get you back on the show at some point in the future and we can rehash some of this stuff and see where we sure. are sure yeah i mean I'd, I'd love to i really appreciate y'all's input on this stuff like that's uh i, I don't know i always learn something new you know so that's that's good. Well, and something's got to be working. You got what? Twenty people in the world? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. I saw the list on Instagram. It was like, oh, that's so many people. Yeah. 
there's a lot of people i kind of thought last year i was like man i don't know what we're gonna do next year and now this year i'm thinking i don't know what we're do next year at some point at some point we're gonna hit a limit there but uh no it's good man i'm i'm really excited we're uh i'm gonna unfortunately only be able to catch the open lifters this year uh, but i'm really looking forward to getting up there and and I don't know. It's it's really nice too for me to like on that end of it. I get to go there and be there for the competition, but mm. there's a lot less pressure in terms of mm. like actually doing stuff because most of these people have like their national team coaches that'll be taking care of them and stuff. So I get to be a fan, and I am definitely a fan. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Mike, a few things. Can you tell people about the free resources that you have on your website and any projects yeah. coming up or, or seminars or anything you got down the pipeline and where people can connect with you? Sure. Uh, connection stuff is pretty straightforward. Uh, reactive training systems or Mike Tushir. Um, we're most active on YouTube and Instagram these days. Um we also have a free training log app on the website. Uh, if you go to reactivetrainingsystems.com, you log in and you click on apps, you're there. Uh, so it's a web app. Um, you can log your training, run block reviews, run meta block reviews. Uh, so like all this stuff, it's designed to give you useful information back, mm. you know, and, and, you know, kind of designed to work with all these concepts. Um, Projects, probably the thing that's that's most relevant and the thing that I'm like most excited about right now. Um, we do have, we've been in this process of updating a lot of the stuff on the web apps so it works better for mobile. Uh, so the the like the edit workout screens, the screens that require the most data input, uh, will be mobile friendly and like two weeks or so. Nice. So, uh, I don't know how long it'll take you guys to release this, but maybe by the time this just comes say, out, yeah, just say now they're out now. <laughs> so uh, hopefully I'm not late. Right. But, right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that's a thing that we're really looking forward to. It'll make data entry just a little easier, a little more convenient, uh, so that you get that information back out of it. So that's probably the, the thing that's, close and and exciting for me anyway awesome thanks so much again mike for coming on this was great yeah and it was uh, great man yeah yeah good to talk with you guys hopefully people are more confused after listening that's always the goal <laughs> uh if you're sure of things and you know you got it's some work, you got some work to do yeah right well thanks again mike and thanks Jared and John for being on and we'll see you guys next time or something like that. Bye. Peace.